0: Well, last Sunday, with the Olympic Games having just begun, I preached on the greatest race that we could ever run in life. The race of faith. And the goal and prize of our race is the salvation of our souls. And the only way to that goal is through faith in Jesus Christ. The race that we run is a daily race. It's a race that we run throughout the whole of our life. And we get a lot of things thrown at us in this race sometimes. Often it's not just like, you know, this 100-meter track where we have a lane and we get to just look straight ahead. I, sometimes, y'all, you ever seen the the show where it's more like an obstacle course and there there's these, like, battering rams that come in and try to knock the, the participants off the, off the marks? Yeah, y'all know the shows I'm talking about. They're kind of silly. They add silly sound effects and all that. I feel like life is sometimes a little more like that. But it is this journey, this race that we are on, and we press on toward the goal. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So today I thought we would uh, continue with the theme of faith and talk about living by faith. One of the most well-known early messengers of the gospel is someone who sought to live his life by faith, and that was the Apostle Paul And last week, we focused the passage on a segment of one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. Well, today we're going to uh, take our lesson from his letter to the Romans. And what's kind of interesting for us is that Paul likely wrote this letter to the church in Rome while he was on his third missionary journey in Corinth. So, last week we talked about how he was in Ephesus writing to the Corinthians— so now he's in Corinth writing to the Romans, so just for your knowledge. And so this was written in about 57 AD, and uh, it's, Romans is one of the documents that all theologians, all pastors, all Christians must confront if they are to build a sound theology. This letter that he writes is deep with theological insight. And again, I I want to continue to remind us, as I often have and often will, that Paul does not write these as a systematic theology textbook. They are letters. And I'd say probably what mostly prompts Paul to write these letters is his pastoral concern for the churches, that Paul wants them to truly know and understand the gospel of truth and then to live in accordance with the faith as a loving and united community. And when he sees them straying from the gospel of truth, or when he sees the divisions rising up in the church, he is compelled by his heart for them, by his heart for the gospel, to reorient them. And that's, that's I think, the, the big motivation for many of his works. Well, in our reading today from Romans, it's, it starts with the first lines of the letter, and it begins as an introduction But as you will notice, it turns quickly into a presentation of the gospel message. So before we jump into the text, let us offer a prayer. Lord, we open our minds and hearts to your spirit this morning that you would move us. May we surrender before you our idols, our pride, and our distractions. Prune in us any part of our lives or thinking that is not submitted to you. And may your spirit refine and purify us. And give us a renewed passion to live for you. Amen. Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures. The gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now notice in there, there's no periods in this translation. That's all kind of one sentence, so English teachers are probably cringing with that. But in the, in the Greek language, there, there wasn't punctuation. And so in the translation, you know, the art of translation, that's where commas and periods get inserted where they think works best. So some translations might have more periods within that text, and some just use a comma and use a comma and just keep going and going. Just a side note. But I want to skip a few lines from from where I left off there. Uh, And in these lines I'm skipping, it's basically Paul offers some nice words, nice encouraging words to the church. He he tells them that he hopes to come visit them soon. But we're going to pick up at verse 16. And Paul picks up on, on kind of talking about the gospel. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as the letter begins, as most letters do in this time, this, this kind of short introduction of the author, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Immediately, right off the bat, Paul identifies himself in service to Christ and to Christ alone. To be a servant of Christ is to say that, you know what, I am not my own, but I belong to Christ and I am in service to Christ. And additionally, Paul adds that he is called to be an apostle. Now that word apostle for us, you know, really sounds very Christian-y, sounds very churchy. but you may, you know, you may have heard this before, but the original meaning of the word just in the Greek meant messenger. So Paul, under the authority of Christ, has a message from Christ to share with the world. And that message, he says, is the gospel of God. As you also probably have heard before, the word gospel wasn't originally a Christian word. In the Greek, it's euangelion, which means good news. So the authority over Paul is Christ. And Paul is in service to Christ as a messenger of the good news of God for the people. And he continues with this. He says, which God promised beforehand through the prophets and in the holy scriptures. Paul notes that this gospel of God isn't something that just kind of came about. Or that God was just trying to kind of figure out, oh, how am I going to fix this problem God is not, you know, the Bob Ross of the sky who makes a mistake. He's like, I'm going to make this into a tree. That's not what God is doing. God has been orchestrating his plan throughout the history and the, and the writings of the scripture and the prophets. All the Hebrew scriptures and the prophets are pointing to this good news, which ultimately find their fulfillment in God's son, Jesus. And all this, even though it's kind of part of Paul's introduction, even after he goes through all this, he's not done. He's going to elaborate with even more specificity about what the gospel is. It's almost like he just can't wait to get there. You know, it's like when we have good news to share and we call someone, we don't want to wait five minutes into the phone call. We don't want to wait ten minutes into the phone call. We want to say, hey, here's why I called you. Listen to this. You'll never believe it. Paul, right off the bat, he you know introduces himself and he's going straight into this Message of what the gospel is for them, and he continues, the gospel concerning God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he continues even for what that means for us, for uh, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This gospel affects our lives. It calls us to receive the good news, but then to bring about an obedience of faith, and it sends us outward that others may come to know faith and know the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to continue on and jump right into the last two verses of our selection today. I want to kind of hang out here for a little bit. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. This gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. Let us never, ever get tired of those words or take them lightly, but let us stand in awe of God's grace. And because of God's faithfulness, he gives us the gift of faith through Christ, and we receive righteousness from God. Not a righteousness that we have to manufacture, not a righteousness that we have to, you know, make within us, but a Christ-righteousness that is credited to us, and we are saved through faith. I think maybe the most central concern or issue of the whole of the Bible is this idea of righteousness. How does one become righteous? What makes one righteous before a holy God? Well, first, we believe that God is completely holy and wholly righteous. righteous. Righteousness is a fundamental or is fundamental to the character of God. And all of God's ways are righteous, all of his actions, all of his words, all of his pronouncements. He is righteous in his judgment and in his justice. And God is the standard of righteousness. But the problems that we see in the Bible and really all throughout the Bible. And the problems that we see in our world, and I'm kind of talking about all throughout history, and even in our own lives, are a result in one way or another of human unrighteousness. When humans have made themselves the standard of righteousness, when we have put ourselves in that place, that's when there's a breakdown of freedoms, of fairness, of justice, of generosity, and ultimately of worship. We fashion idols of our own creation. We cause violence and destruction and persecution. We take advantage of others. And this can happen on the individual level and it can happen on the societal level. In the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Habakkuk. It's a fun name to say, Habakkuk. And he's got a book that uh, bears his name, the book of Habakkuk. And it's very short in the Old Testament. It's only three chapters long. In my my Bible, when you open it up, you can see the whole book right there. But it's also an interesting book. See, Habakkuk lived and prophesied in the time right before the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem. So, ballpark, we don't know an exact year, but ballpark around 600 B.C. or so is when Habakkuk is writing. And Habakkuk, why he's writing is he's observing what's going on around him. He's observing what's going on in society. He's observing how the the government is treating the people. And he's troubled by the injustice that he sees. He's troubled by the idolatry that he sees all throughout the nation of Judah. And so in his writing, he he kind of vents this to God. He cries this out to God as as almost a, a complaint. He says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not listen. Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack, and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous, therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. Habakkuk is ultimately saying, God, do you not see these terrible things that are happening? Do you not see how people are treating one another? Why aren't you doing anything? then in in the book, God responds to Habakkuk in verses 5 through 11. I'm going to just kind of paraphrase and summarize, but he's basically saying, I know what's going on. I do see it, and I am going to do something, but it may not be what you expect. I'm going going to use Babylon as my instrument to bring retribution upon the injustice and the idolatry and the sin of Israel. And Habakkuk responds, wait, what? The Babylonians are much worse than the Israelites. What? That doesn't make sense. But God responds again saying, a day will come that Babylon too will fall. And it actually kind of portrays this portrait of a Continuous cycle of nations who rise up and who rule with injustice, but that will be taken down by another. Nations who seek power, who seek to exploit, who seek idolatry will eventually fall into ruin. But the righteous, God says, they will live by faith. The righteous ones may be in the midst of a world that they can't control. They might be in the midst of all this social injustice. They might be in the midst of terror. But they will in every season live by faith. And even in the midst of a world of chaos, of disorder, of evil, the very end of the book Habakkuk ends with saying these words, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exalt in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and he makes me tread upon the heights. Okay, so why why do I bring up Habakkuk? I thought we were talking about Paul and the Romans. Well, I refer to Habakkuk because Paul in Romans refers to Habakkuk. It's in verse 17 where he says, "For it is in the righteousness of God or for in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith as it is written, the one who is righteous" will live by faith. If you know the book of Romans, you know that right after this verse, Paul goes into detail about the current state of the godlessness and the unrighteousness of the times. He says that the people have suppressed the truth of God by their wickedness. He says that the people have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols that they have worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And then he really digs in with this section. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness, They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's quite a portrait as Paul's observing the world in which he finds himself. And so I think Paul's quote of Habakkuk is not, you know, just kind of to take one nice-sounding one-liner out of the Old Testament and say, yeah, that sounds good, oh, I'm going to use that. I think Paul uses it because he sees the, the evil and the wickedness going on that's on display all around him. He sees the unrighteousness, and he says, yes, you know what, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there's this thing that Paul knows, and it's called the gospel of God. Paul has a greater hope because he knows that we now have the opportunity to be made righteous by God's grace. And this righteousness is a free gift. It is secured for us by the redemption bought for us in Christ Jesus through faith and faith alone. This is the good news of God for all who believe. That even in the midst of evil, the righteous are made righteous by faith And we should continue to live by faith. So as you know, the Summer Olympics are going on in Tokyo, Japan. But in the year 1936, the Summer Olympic Games were, of all places, held in Berlin, Germany. And I expect that when you hear the 1930s in Germany in the same sentence, you immediately know the context that it is Nazi-controlled Germany. See, the 1930s saw the swift rise of the Nazi party. And you know about the atrocities done under Hitler's regime by the end of World War II. But how in the world did Nazi Germany get to host the Olympic Games in 1936? You know, the Olympic Games are supposed to be the celebration of peace among nations, of sportsmanship. It brings people together. Yet this was a few years before World War broke out. Those athletes at those games potentially fighting against one another in battle just years later. How did this come to be? Well, for one, the games were already slated to be in Berlin prior to uh, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party taking control of Germany's government. So it was already kind of slated but two, remember that in 1936, that was six full years prior to when the United States would f- first set combat troops in Europe. And so things overall were still relatively stable amongst the nations, but there was some controversy. There were some things that were already being done in Germany that people knew about, particularly um, laws and regulations against the Jews And this brought up controversy in countries such as the United States, wondering, should we partake in the games? Should we go? Should we not go? And as much as I'd personally like to kind of go through the history and the longer timeline and the details of all the events that kind of led to the rise of everything, I'll just summarize to say that Hitler and the Nazi uh, the Nazis promised to say, okay, for the Olympic Games we're going to relax everything, at least publicly in their policies, to make every, everything seem as happy as possible in Germany. And so they put on this, you know, nice face for everyone, and they brought in delegates, and they just kind of really schmoozed them and showed them all the good things, and people said, okay, well maybe, maybe it's not as bad as, as what we've heard. And it worked. It was enough to appease most of the nations, and so countries from all over the world came and participated in the games together, United States being one of them. And it's the 1936 Olympics. These were the games that Jesse Owens won four gold medals in track and field. And um, really the games were this spectacle to behold. They showed off, the, the Nazis showed off the, their massive building projects, this huge colise- coliseum that would hold 100,000 people. And if you look at the pictures, I don't think there's an empty seat in the stands. They televised it, and the German propaganda, put, they just put on this show. A number of elements that we continue to observe, that we do in our opening ceremonies and things like that, like the passing of the torch and all that, started with the 1936 Olympics. The Olympics, as we know, they're supposed to represent a celebration of peace and goodwill and sportsmanship among nations, to bring people together. I still can't help to think of when I see these pictures or when I think about it about the tragedies that occurred at the hands of Nazi Germany in the years to come and even that were going on behind the scenes then how could things get so bad how did people allow such atrocities to happen and really the bigger question for me when I think about this is where was the church well the church was there but sadly the church was split Essentially, there were some professing Christians that wanted a state church. This was a group called, that kind of got the title German Christians, and they were inclined to align themselves with the Nazi party because they, they felt it best, that that best served their interest. They s- supported more of a nationalist ideology. And then there were others who were part of what was called the confessing church. And these were people who resisted Nazi state you know, authority. And it was from this group that the theological declaration of Barman was drafted. And that's part of our our book of confessions. And I wanted to read, it's actually the the introduction, it's not actually the text of the declaration. But I wanted to read the introduction just because it gives uh, some of the context of what was going on. And as we'll see, as we'll talk about in just a minute, how do we, when we think about our lives, live by faith in our context So this says, the theological declaration of Barman was written by a group of church leaders in Germany to help Christians withstand the challenges of the Nazi party and of the so-called German Christians, a popular movement that saw no conflict between Christianity and the ideals of Hitler's national socialism. In January of 1933, after frustrating years in which no government in Germany was able to solve problems of economic depression and massive or mass unemployment, Adolf Hitler was named chancellor. By playing on people's fears of communism and Bolshevism, he was able to persuade the parliament to allow him to rule by edict. As he consolidated his power, Hitler abolished all political rights and democratic processes. Police could detain persons in prison without a trial, search private dwellings without a warrant, seize property, censor publications, tap phone lines and forbid meetings. He soon outlawed all political parties except his own, smashed labor unions, purged universities, replaced the judicial system with his own, um, initiated a systemic terrorizing of Jews, and obtained the support of church leaders allied with or sympathetic to the German Christians. Most Germans took the union of Christianity, nationalism, and militarism for granted, and patriotic sentiments were equated with Christian truth. The German Christians exalted the racially pure nation and the rule of Hitler as God's will for the German people. nonetheless, some in the churches resisted, and it lists some names and I almost kind of summarize this paragraph. they got together. It says, "The chief item of business when they got together was discussion and a declaration to appeal to the evangelical churches of Germany to stand firm against the German Christian accommodation to National Socialism. The Theological Declaration of Barman contains six propositions, each quoting from Scripture, stating its implications for the present day and rejecting the false doctrine of the German Christians. The Declaration proclaims the church's freedom in Jesus Christ, who is Lord of every area of life. The church obeys him as God's one and only word who who determines its order, ministry, in relation to the state. The declaration was debated and adopted without amendment in the confessing church. That part of the church that opposed the German Christians rallied around it. I encourage you sometime, if if you get a chance to read the, the declaration and think about it in its context... Those who took seriously the lordship of Christ, the authority of the scriptures, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit took a stand against injustice and, uh, and idolatry. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you've heard that name, was a significant leader in the confessing church in the 1930s. You can see from his example of life, there's a, there's a great biography about him. There's a, a thick version of it, and I think there's an abridged version. Um, but you can see the, from the biography of life, how he lived his life, his writings, both his, his academic writings, both his sermons, but also in his private writings to people, you can see that he was a man who was inspired in God's grace to live by faith, even if it meant hardships, even if it meant prison, or even execution. The Apostle Paul also was a man so captivated by God's grace that he too sought to live by faith, even if it meant hardships even if it meant prison or even, per- or even execution. And the same was true of the prophets of the Old Testament, like Habakkuk. Now, I certainly hope that we never face such times in our lives, that we never face such atrocities that Habakkuk, Paul, and those in the church who took their stand against Nazi Germany faced. We pray against such things. But at all times... At all times in our life, in our race of faith, we ought to always take seriously what it means to live by faith. We ought to take seriously the lordship of Christ, the authority of the scriptures, and the conviction and power of the Holy Spirit. The truth of God confronts evil. It confronts the evils of this world and should confront our own sin too and call us to account. Living by faith is to live in the presence of God's power, knowing that you belong to God. So in the midst of this world, may we rely on God's strength, and like Paul, be able to proclaim, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous live by faith. Friends, let us continue to live by faith. Amen. I invite you in this time of of offering uh, to spend some time in prayer and reflect how God may be speaking to you and working within your life and what God's Spirit wants to show you this day.